When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to Intellicast. Hey everybody, how are you? Um, this is season five, episode twelve. Um, this is the continuation of um, the topic we've had for quite a while. Yeah. Around it started off with earnings per click, and it's really kind of getting into balancing buyer and supplier metrics and challenges, providing sample to to um, studies. And this is, I think each episode, I don't know what, I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel like we're getting deeper every episode. Is that right? We are. And for my naming puns on going back to movies, I'm struggling for a part three. I think it's just going to be like EPC with colon in the name kind of going forward now because there are no good like part four, part five, so on and so forth naming conventions. Yeah. And so Vignesh, obviously, um, who's the CEO and founder of Research Defender. Um, has been on the podcast many times, and he's another one of the experts in this area. He, you know, he worked at Lucid. Now, sent um, he worked there for I think seven or eight years. Um, founded Research Defender about three years ago, and has, certainly is an entertaining guest. Very, very smart and knowledgeable in this topic. And as we continue this, we love feedback. This is how Katie Gross got on the last episode, and then Vignesh got on this episode by. Hey, listen to your episode. Here are my thoughts. We're like, come on, man. Like, let's join the conversation. And what's a funny thing is I think we have to have Vignesh on again because... We do. Because we didn't even talk about what we were originally going to talk about. The core message he sent, we did not get to, no. Right. So um, I hope you all enjoy this. And I think that this will be kind of an ongoing thing that we talk about more challenges in sampling as sample evolves and gets more complicated. And um, so here's Vignesh. Thanks, everybody. Hello, I'm joined now by uh, Vignesh Krishnan. Hello, Vignesh, how are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. Uh, traveling this week and hopefully getting out there a little bit more and hope to see you guys soon. Yeah, hopefully soon. Yeah, you're, you're the CEO of Research Defender. Research Defender, as I've praised you before, when you rebranded recently, you have all the vowels, you have all, especially all the E's, you didn't get crazy. And I like to think that we had a part in that. Um, yeah. You might have been crazy without us. Yes, I, I definitely did not want to have to come on the podcast and speak about why there were no vowels. Um, and I'm not so young or cool, <laughs> I think, to be dropping the vowels. So there you go. And it's also worth mentioning for today's discussion, um, you worked at Lucid for quite a while also. So yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of very familiar with the programmatic uh, modern sampling. And um, Andrew DeSellis is joining us for part three of this discussion um, around started off with earnings per click. Maybe I'll set the stage and let you kind of um, give your kind of high level thoughts, Vignesh, is that we've had a couple podcasts. If you've yeah. listened to them around earnings per click, um, Andrew and I kind of talked about it for, I don't know, 
45 minutes or an hour in the first episode. Um, had a lot of feedback from clients and partners. So we had Katie Gross on. Yeah. Katie Gross had some strong opinions, and I think she really helped drive the discussion forward um, and had a, just a really cool perspective on it and had a lot of discussion. We probably could have talked to her for hours. And then Vignesh, as you typically do, you reached out to us and yeah. um, you had some thoughts too on the previous two pod, um, yeah, the previous two podcasts. So maybe, yeah, maybe we can start there with like kind of high level thoughts on the discussion that we're having around earnings per click, modern sampling, programmatic, all of these kind of topics. Sure. Um, so when you say high level thoughts, I have to, you know, guard myself against talking for the <laughs> next 30 minutes, right? Because I think there's, there's a lot of thoughts there the important topic. Um, I, I think if you zoom out, it's important to know and understand, and we all do, that there are two very different sides to this ecosystem, although they're part of the same coin, right? Two different sides to the same coin, as, as they say. Um, on the Let's start with the supply side. Um, and on the supply side, you have a desire to earn, just like any supplier does. And I think EPCs, as all of you have chatted before, I think it's an important metric. Um, it is an easy metric um, and it's a fairly robust one because generally speaking, it can help you understand quote unquote how one survey is performing uh, versus another. Um, on the buy side, of course, I think that we have to keep in mind that there is still and will probably be space for research in a variety of methods that may or may not lend itself to EPC as the best metric to track, okay? Um, you may have a low EPC, but you may have a high payout. Um, so I think when we had emailed, um, one of the points I was trying to make is that I don't think anybody on the buyer side or the seller side or the, the middle, the, the exchanges, the aggregators, um, would ever say that the respondent should be a commodity because it just doesn't, frankly, speak, feel right to say that, number one. And number two, you don't want to get to a point where you know, the asset is a commodity because we all know what happens to commodity, right? Like we've talked about sugar and salt and, you know, all of these things, which which basically that's what they are and they'll, they'll never recover. Um, however, what might be something interesting to talk about here is the respondent's time at a given moment. So the question is, how do we treat that? There are many industries that treat a given asset at a given time in different ways. For example, like the flight will never sell the last seat for $1, even though it makes sense for them to do that. Um, you know, they have guarded against that in, in some sense. Um, however, other in industries have gone the way of commodity. And, and the question I think we should all be thinking about, as well as the topics that you spoke about, is if a respondent is available at a given time, what is that time worth? And is that time, you know, abstract or is it specific to that individual? Because I think that may help us understand and think of a few things. So, for example, if there's a medical doctor required for a survey that's about some very you know you know serious topic. How do you treat that versus me and my preference for Starbucks or or not Starbucks, right? And and I think that attention to time might be something that is important here as well. But generally speaking, I, I think you know it's a big topic and it may actually determine which path we go and where we see ourselves in you know in in five years, if not already, quite frankly. I I love that analogy of the airline not selling the last seat on the plane for a dollar, even though that would be a dollar they didn't have before. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit more to how that analogy would apply to sampling specifically and how the EPC 
metric may or may not play into that? Yeah, sure. I, I think, again, uh, every question can go very deep, yeah? And I think that's actually a very deep question. And the reason is, first of all, if we want to look at the economic side of things, uh, ultimately, there's only four or five airlines that you can fly, right, within the United States versus you. I think the number came from you that you've vetted, what, over 500 panels or something uh, pretty significant. And I know you don't use as many, but still, it, it's it's in the dozens, if not maybe even low hundreds. Um, so I think that's an important aspect to think about here because I, I, I too, think that that analogy is something that can inform us. Um, but the question is whether it's a fair one, right? Because there's only four airlines, so many panel companies. That's number one. Uh, number two is digital time is more ethereal, right? Um, we don't know if it exists really or, or how do we interact with it at a given time? Does what happens, you know, when it, when it goes away kind of thing? We can get real philosophical about it. Um, and I, I think the quote-unquote answer, I mean, it's not the answer, but it's a way to think about it, is whether or not the supply chain is willing to not sell at the $1, right? And as such, they respect the respondent and, and vice versa. The buyer's not even asking because now you would not expect any time to go and look for an air ticket that, that costs $1 unless there's some crazy sale or, you know, like, you know, I think for, for a while in March, 2020, that, that was happening, but it quickly did not happen, right? Even at that crazy time. Um, so I... I wonder if whose responsibility that is right ultimately it feels like it is on the supply in that specific context to quote unquote not sell it at a dollar but we all know that revenue matters and the analogy is not a good one because there's a huge fixed cost for airlines there's a massive fixed cost and they need to guard that fixed cost versus for the digital asset there isn't a fixed cost as much right i mean it is there it's in the hundreds of thousands maybe millions it's not in the tens of millions or potentially hundreds of millions so that's a really interesting thought because in our previous discussions, um, myself particularly, I've been kind of on this path that earnings per click is very, very um, black and white. It's incredibly price driven. And I've been frustrated by you know, the amount of focus that it puts on price in actual field work. Um, and one thread that we were continuing to pull especially uh, at the end of the first episode, and I think we did touch on it um, at the end of the second one, is that by focusing on price, by looking at granular earnings per click, does that commoditize sample? And it occurred to me while you were saying that, that, you know, perhaps not. Does having a more transparent, more holistic assessment of survey health that yes is tied to price does that allow the suppliers to then make that same decision that you just described that the airline would where is there an earnings per click where we don't sell where we don't field where we don't ask the respondents for their time in exchange for a certain opportunity costs because we know they're probably going to be blocked or drop out or terminate or so on and so forth. Um, So then does that give us the ability to fight commoditization? Yeah. 
by using that metric that lets us really see in there to make the decision, you know, no, we're not going to send sample at 10 cents earnings per click. Um, And I think too, you know, Katie was describing on the last episode that while yes, some panels internally will have throttles that, um, pull up or down uh, based on earnings per click. And we certainly know that that happens in proprietary panels where you're working with a single panel. But she had also let us know that in exchanges, when we see dips in traffic because of EPC, it's typically happening because entire suppliers are dropping out and not yeah. sending it lower earnings per yeah. click. So in a sense, they're making that decision to not sell the last seat yeah. on the plane. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd be curious for your thoughts on, on that. that. Yeah. Um, and then Brian, I'd love your thoughts on that as well. Does earnings per click actually help us fight the commoditization of sample? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I think one important thing to note here, or at least thing to think about is, when I joined the industry 12 years ago, so 2010, um, this was happening, except it was happening not in a programmatic way. So, I, and I'm sure, you know, we, have remem- we remember, and, uh, you know, I've heard that a supplier, quote unquote, cut the, the sample off to the survey because the incidence dropped below something. And that is, I mean, ultimately, incidence is tried to price on some level, right? Um, although they are independent things, I think the desire to have better. Um, outcomes for the respondent is is underneath both incidence and price. And I think what's going on now is it's happening programmatically and it's happening immediately and and it's not even being served versus before you would get something and then somewhere the project project manager would recognize two days in or three days in that, hey, this outcome is not great for the company, whether it be it IR or price, but ultimately it was the same kind of thinking. Um, so I, I would agree with you, though, that in, in some cases, the suppliers are not sending uh, based on the last seed and not, I wouldn't, I mean, it, actually it is happening. I actually, you know, when I was at the exchanges, it was, it was happening then. So three, I presume it's far more sophisticated at this point where the quote-unquote last seed on the flight is not being sold, even though there exists. But the question is whether that individual is being sold elsewhere, right? Or are they saying, hey, there are no surveys today, right? And I would say that again, the answer is somewhere in the middle because we clearly know that the prices have dropped. And yes, I know the last two years after post-COVID, basically it's been coming up a little bit, but it's still in the order of 10, 15% as opposed to you know what it was many years ago. It was single, high single digits or, or even, even $15, $20. Um, so I think there's a bit of, there's definitely truth in the fact that they are not selling the last seat. Um, but I also think there's truth in the fact that it is still heavily, quote unquote, commoditized to some extent, right? I, I think the, if you look at the prices and where they are, that's pretty low. Um, so I think there's truth in both of those things. And this, there is historic precedent to this, you know, many years ago, except that was done in a manual way. And, and I'll add, I think that, I, I love the plane analogy, the, the airline analogy, but with survey, our, our world is a little bit different in that our earnings per click changes so much as the survey goes on, especially as quotas close, 
Yeah. Our last seat on the plane is very different than a yes. generic seat on the on a plane, right? We're looking for a very hard to reach person. And as that EPC goes down at the supplier level, either they're manually going to stop it for their respondents, um, which is what probably should happen because they have other options. Um, that's, that's what I think should be, that's what I think, that's what I would do if there's other options out there. And as those quotas close, your EPC is going to crash. Yeah. And that's something we need to think about as an industry. Um, at an individual level, I'm hoping that the programmatic and the survey walls and, and us all working together as clients and sample consultants and suppliers that when these quotas close, we are communicating that as fast as possible so that the EPC can remain as high as possible rather than just, you know, a million people trying to get into this, you know, impossible target to find. And I think that's part of the problem too. I don't want to change the topic, but um, that's part of the problem is the speed at which we can communicate quota closes. And I think Katie touched on this a little bit so that the last seat in the plane is still the same kind of price on mm -hmm. everybody's metrics than yeah. the first seat in the plane. Yeah. And, and here's a point on the buyer and the supplier side, uh, Brian. So on the supplier side, I would say that, um, yes, I agree that obviously, you know, we, we can't force two analogies together. However, the, the, on the supply side, what they would argue is that the last quota or the, you know, the heart reach, you know, uh, demographic, like you, like you said, um, is not priced more though. It's still priced, if I'm not wrong, at the same, uh, at the same uh, price. And the question is whether there should be a so-called quota-based pricing, right, or a demographic-based pricing where you're pricing on rarity. Um, so I think that would be something to think about. But on the on the buyer side, I think perhaps there has been a bridge in communication. I mean, although everyone obviously knows everything that we're talking about there's an inherent ex expectation that when you price this stuff and you give me a budget for the survey or, you know, and I know sometimes it doesn't, you know, go the bidding way. It, it happens naturally through the exchange or, or the pricing or the, you know, the, the APIs, but still there is an expected budget. And I think maybe mm -hmm. there's a gap of like, Hey, we said the budget is this and it is your job to figure out all of that. Right. Don't come to us later and say that the EPC has dropped. Right. And, I think you guys may have talked about this before, but you can also set it in a way, and I think obviously companies do this, which is you have a one-to-one -one transaction uh, over the counter between the buyer and the seller. I'm waving my hands which for a, for a podcast, which probably is not useful, but you have a one-to-one -one relationship between buyer and seller for an over-the-counter transaction. And at that point, like the EPCs, don't matter in the sense that they should not be brought up by the supplier. That's a thought that should have been thought of during the bidding process. They should hold strong and offer what they can deliver. And then on the exchange piece, there perhaps you can have a discussion around EPCs because it's a valid one because you know these are all real-time dynamic decisions. And yes, suppliers are obviously going to price for the, the their you know financial outcomes, right? Given comparative surveys. Um, so that's going to be one way to think about it, perhaps. Um, and yeah, I don't know if you, if you have any thoughts on, on that one. And, and there, this analogy does work in other industries, right? Like, you know, um, you have the uh, companies that, you know, 
uh, ad tech specifically, like ESPN could buy a chunk of ads directly, you know, uh, from somebody that's, or rather vice versa, an advertiser can buy a chunk of ads from ESPN because they know people are going to come to the website versus buy it on the quote unquote exchange where you don't know where the ad, ad is served. Right. And, and that, that's a direct relationship on, on that front. So I think that you really hit the nail on the head there that, you know, the, the difficulty is that we are almost always quoting with a single CPI. And you're right that, you know, all respondents are not the same. Some are much more, Brian, this is what you were alluding to. Some are much more difficult to get. And as the survey progresses, um, you know, the, the individual, call it dynamic difficulty per respondent changes as over quotas pile up. Um, but also as throughout fielding, things like um, duplicates, targetable terms, fraud blocks, all of yeah. those things kind of add up, right? You know, when we first hit field, all that is great, right? None of that has happened yet. And so the earnings per click should be really high for say the first hundred clicks or so. And then, then as those other things sort of trickle in, it continues to go down. Um, so what can we do as suppliers to help our clients better understand, not understand, I think they do understand it. What can we do as suppliers to present more accurate budgets to our clients who are used to buying on single CPIs and not having their price go up just because the earnings per click is low? Um, or is that what we need to do? You know, I, I'm just not really sure how if every single quota group should have a different price and those prices will change throughout fielding. How do we tackle that? Yeah. When we talk, when Vignesh said quota-based pricing, it seems like we're always talking like, oh, these are the hard ones we need to, the price has to increase. None of us have mentioned, hey, those easy ones, maybe that price is too high for those easy ones. Right. So, and that's currently kind of how we do it. Like with a net CPI. Right. That's supposed to be the average. So those easy ones yeah. should be coming at lower with yeah. those higher ones coming in higher to average out to that. So is that a, those easy ones, Hey, yeah, you know what? The higher, maybe that to adjust it, those easy ones, there's a little bit of yeah. cost yeah. coming from there to the harder targets. So you can increase that. So at the average, your EPC still hits or your well, CPI. Yeah. And but by the way, I don't have a solution to this. I'm genuinely asking the group because um, I'm not sure because what you just described, um, Brian, is what we do right now. And so perhaps it is that using a, so like, for example, something that happens very, very commonly is that our clients will want to quota on non-targetable customer segments, right? There's a typing tool, there's behavioral screening that places them into these different behavioral and attitudinal profiles, so on and so forth. Some of them are going to be much lower instance than others. So we can preemptively factor in how many over quotas we're going to get while we're pursuing those customer segments at the end of field. That's how we calculate our net incidence rate. 
We then take that and we plug it into the pricing when speaking, when we at EMI as sample source and consultants, of course, a panel would just do this um, themselves directly, but we then go out to the panels. And even if, you know, the survey will start at 80% incidents when everyone is qualifying, um, we will have them give us pricing based on a 20% incidence, knowing that, you know, once everything else closes, we're still going to need 50 people at a 3% IR, a whole bunch of overquotas are going to come in, and we'll end up somewhere around 20. Yeah. So I guess the question is, you know, when we're doing pricing, sure, incidence is a part of that, but should we be anticipating not only overquotas, but fraud blocks? Maybe we look at historical drop rates per yeah. client based yeah. on survey platform. Yeah. Should we be in our pricing factoring those things in, factoring in not just the incidence rate, but factoring in the total conversion? Because I was kind of, um, you know, in the first episode, I was saying like, oh my gosh, I, you know, missed the days when it was just IR and LOI, um, you know, but have not had the epiphany yet that maybe we need to price on more than IR and LOI if the earnings yeah. per click is going to factor in more than IR and LOI. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, thoughts on that, Vignesh and Brian. Adam, real quick, build on that, Vignesh, and go to you because I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. An example of this, there's a cost per acquisition on the supply side. And an example of this, I think, is Hispanics and especially on a culture of Hispanics, we wouldn't, I don't think we would ever build in a hybrid CPI model if a client, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Andrew, if a client said, I want a representative group of Hispanics and a certain percentage of them have to be unacculturated, you'd probably price those CPIs completely separately, right? And is that how we should move yes. forward? As really should we look at other demographic and maybe not just demographic groups like you're suggesting and have a separate kind of pricing. Is that where we should or could go to? And then Vignesh, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I think, yes, you're right. Actually, that's a good example and a very clear one because people would price those separately. Um, I, I think there's enough of a difference versus the former or general demos would be more gradient in a, in a gradient format versus, you know, the Hispanic unacculturated uh, un 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 specifically would be very different. Um, so I think that's fair. Um, and, you know, there's an interesting like technological um, incident, I'll call it, which I'll share from, from back in the day, which may or may not be relevant here, but I think it'll be interesting in terms of pricing, which is at one point we had a system which would only allow a certain amount of people in based on how many people are already in the survey because we didn't want to over uh, fill, okay? And so let's say that we know that it was a 10% uh, incidence or 5% or incidence. We would allow no more than, um, you know, five divided by, you know, how many ever was left, right? So if, if 10 quotas were left, we would allow 10 divided by 5%. And now I've run myself to a corner because I don't know how to do the math in the head, but let's say 200 people, okay? But the problem was that as the last quota comes into play, or the last few quotas come to play, you will never complete the survey because by definition, the person is harder. 
and you need a higher funnel, but the algorithm is actually only rationing the number of people let in, right? So I think that is important in that in the in the unacculturated Hispanic example, wherein that's happening up front as opposed to happening at the end of the survey and it's becoming harder and harder and harder. Um, we have to think about it up front, okay? And by, by the way, as you can guess, in that case, we just lifted, we just got rid of that gate, which is only rationing the amount of people because you would literally never get the last complete. Um, so I, I think that's a, a good way to think about it. The other way, which, you know, I'm just putting this out there and this might be a different podcast, quite frankly, is that I kind of feel we're also straddling two worlds because on the programmatic side, when you look at a company like Google or Facebook um, or you know one of those larger companies which are looking at data on an aggregate level, you are in a so-called probabilistic world. Okay, it's okay for them to target huge, you know, DMAs and huge regions, knowing that X percent will be male, X percent will be female. Um, y percent will be, you know, whatever ethnicity that that they're targeting, so on and so forth. Versus in research data, we want to look at every single respondent individually, right? But we're taking the calculations of EPCs from one world and applying it to a different world. Right now, the genie is out of the bottle, and that's how it is. So nobody's going to go back, right? You can undo that, and I, maybe you shouldn't undo that. I think it's it's a good system for many reasons. But the question is, we're forcing two different worlds. Uh, t- to get together, right? So we have the probabilistic, you know, uh, social media and, and search engines and so on and so forth. And you have the specific or deterministic survey research where every single respondent is categorized and respected and you know their demos and you want to hear what their opinions are. You want to see which checkbox they checked versus, and we have to d- present that to the clients. Yes, at some point it becomes probabilistic again, but ultimately we're looking at every single role. Um, and I think that's where like the marriage of EPC and demand may not be very, it may be a bit tenuous because it's not the same world you're trying to force it with each other. And of course, Brian, that's a bit of a digression from your original question, but I, I do agree that you should be pricing these separately and distinctly. So actually, Brian, I'm going to let you talk first. I see you ready to say something. I'm not sure to go where to go because I know we only have a couple minutes left and I don't want to divert topics for something that could get us down another rabbit hole. So I don't know, do we have a couple more minutes on this? Any other final points on this topic? Maybe we should just do that. And this, this got really deep, really quick. This is kind of fascinating to me. Um, Yes, we can do a part four as well. I think that, you know, based on the feedback we're getting, no one would hate having a part four. Um, so, and I don't mean to circle um, too far back, but, you know, a lot of the things in this is, you know, I have priced um, probably somewhere over 10,000 surveys over the last wow. seven years, right? We do a lot of bids here at EMI. Um, so I have done this a lot. Um, and there are a lot of situations, you know, I, Brian, you had given the example of the unacculturated Hispanics. And I think that's a good example of something that we would pull out. Right. But it's perhaps a poor example of how we can strategically approach this because we already do that. Right. We would never just lump them in and try to have that fallout naturally. Um, because we know 
that's a premium respondent who's not going to be available within the sample. Um, now, and there, there's whole other things, right? There are panels that only have UX in English. And so of course they're not gonna be there, so on and so forth. Um, and I think that, you know, Vignesh with everything that you were just talking about, which is, is fantastic. Um, as far as coming up with like a practical solution, for what we're really talking about is how do we price this in a way that is efficient? Because I would let, you know, we could give the client a different CPI for every 5% of the survey, yeah. right? And say, hey, your CPI is going to go up as we get closer to the end. Yeah. We, yeah. we could do all that, but that just gets crazy. It's impractical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how do we provide a budget that is efficient, is clear, and we can commit to that also factors in that over the last you know five years particularly the last two epc is coming into play we're factoring all these other things into pricing um i'm gonna come back to and brian and vignesh i'd love your thoughts on this and we should explore this internally. Um, Brian, I hate to put something on your plate, but this will come down the official EMI pipeline to see if we can, if we can and should start doing this. Um, perhaps we should be looking at client historical performance data mm -hmm. and factor that conversion yeah. into our pricing. And while, of course, we're going to provide the expected incidence rate as we currently consider it, and we'll also continue to do that from a net incidence perspective, if we know there are non-targetable quotas, should we also tell panels that client A you know, uses a great survey platform, everything is short, everything is gamified, we're only expecting a 4% drop rate, um, hey, panel B, based on all of our research defender data, we anticipate, anticipate fraud blocking 6% of your respondents. Oh, by the way, we're going to use panels A, B, and C, which I mean, in an EMI, we, and I don't know if we've talked about this too much, but I mean, we have so much data on duplication that it's ridiculous because of what we do every day. So, hey, panel A, yeah. we're going to block 12% of your respondents for duplication. We yeah. know that. We can predict every single one of those things that goes into EPC. Yeah. Now that's going to make my job really hard if I have to go look at all of that to provide a sample quote. Um, so maybe I should stop talking about that before <laughs> everyone says, hey, that's exactly what you yeah. should do. Yeah, I, I, but if yeah. we provide all that information, then maybe the panel can give us a price that factors in what the EPC is going to be at the end of the survey. Yeah, I think I, I, actually, I actually think that's fantastic. Um, and the Good thing, Andrew, is you probably don't have to do that that often. You have to update it every quarter, maybe. Um, but yes, the, the fixed cost initially would, would be high. But essentially, you're back calculating and bring, bringing both sides to the same playing field, which I think is the crux of it. Because ultimately, it's almost like two different languages, and there has to be a translation. And what you're talking about is that translation. I love that, Andrew. And one more thing that I think is impacting this is we've talked about and this is probably another podcast, we probably should end it, but I wanted to mention the supply demand thing, which we've talked about for a couple of years now, which we probably always talked about 
there's a lot more demand for an 18 to 24 year old Hispanic and an 18 to 24 year old African-American male than there is for a 35 year old female, white female, especially. And so that's, <clears throat> we could get into talking about that. An 18 to 24 year old African-American male has a lot of options for surveys. And so they're probably driving the CPIs up and the EPC up, especially today, more so in the past, and maybe I'm wrong, but there's a, there's a supply and demand within very granular segments in our industry right now that are challenges because if you go to a survey wall, my survey wall will look very different from a, you know, points per minute if I take a survey than it will for an 18 to 24 year old um, Hispanic male. And I think that plays a part of this. I think we're going to have to have a part four, unfortunately. I'm thinking part five. <laughs> yeah. I've got lots of notes here. Um, the initial thing we're going to have to, we're going to have to say goodbye to you, unfortunately. Right. Maybe you come back on part four, part five. Any, let's do some closing thoughts just really quick. Any yeah. final thoughts for anybody? Yeah, look, I, I think it's a complex topic. I think it's important that we're talking about this. I think some of Andrew's uh, last thoughts in terms of leveling the pale playing field or translating one into the other is important. Um, and I also, at the same time, think, you know, the genie's out of the bottle and this is a very important way that we're moving forward. And I actually think if we make those translations, if we bridge that gap, basically, um, I, I think it can be really, really powerful and much more seamless than it is today. So I actually think this is a super important topic. Vignesh, thanks for coming on. Where, where can we find you? Um, I'm sure we're going to be at upcoming conferences, right? Yeah, I, I'll see you at the upcoming conferences. Obviously, LinkedIn, email, um, Research Defender, like you said, all, all the vowels in is a good way to find us, uh, the, both the website as well as LinkedIn. So, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing you uh, in, in later in April. And you just did a um, SMR webinar with Chuck Miller and Stephen Krauss. I have not got through it yet. It is really okay. cool, though. I I'm going to recommend that. It's called New Frontiers in ResTech Sampling Excellence, Data Quality, and Fraud Detection. I think it was a free SMR webinar. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And it was really good. So it's driving all of the sample discussion around somewhat similar topic. Um, Andrew, any final thoughts? Um, no, I think my, my last rant there was my final thought. Um, okay. You know, I think we need to really dive into that and think about that and think about how we price and to determine whether or not that is a problem we're trying to solve. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Vignesh, for your time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Dot com.